into sports. 20 yards out, Ursa shoot, don't shoot! Oh, oh what a goal for Fabinho! Wow! Then get into the all new OTB Sports app. I think when he apologises to me, I probably will say hello to him, yeah. No. Videos, sports news, live scores, interviews. If Abregas is going to come up to me in the street and give me some of a mouth that he would have given me on a football pitch, what do we get a slap? Plus, exclusive content on the OTB Podcast Network. The biggest names in sports. Ready when you are. Search OTB Sports on your app store and download it now. The OTB Podcast Network. I'm a very confident front runner. I've carried for 33 years, 145 wins now, and that's the best win I've ever had. I have no idea what you have. I don't know. I'm, how are we going to count all the shots? Do you, I, I can't keep track. I don't think he's pleased. Of course you would. That's a, that's a particularly stupid question. If they are show up, of course you want to play at the weekend. Now then, you're welcome along to Golf Weekly. Great to have you with us a week out from Christmas Eve. What a bloody year it's been, Nathan Murphy. How are you on about, Joe? <laughs> Fionn Davenport <laughs> over in Manchester. Hello to you. Hey, Joe. Uh, full of Christmas cheer, Peter Laurie. Hello. Hello, Joe. <laughs> Decorations <laughs> up in Spowell? No comment. Yeah, I'd say one little line of measly tinsel at the door is about as far as you've gone. Uh, no comment. You, you, you haven't been there, so therefore, you, you know, come along and see. Check it out. Okay. Uh, I did we, have actually one of the uh, yeah, locals saying, was that really true? If I knocked on the back door, could I have hit balls? And I went, no. Very happy to say we have dragged in Paul McGinley to help us review this very strange 2020. He was in Dubai last week watching 47-year-old Lee Westwood. Thank you very much. Doing his thing. Race to Dubai winner. Paul, how you doing? Yeah. Hi. Hi, Joe. Hi, guys. How you doing? Good, thank you. Yeah. Great to have you with us. Nice to get some sunshine out in Dubai. How are they uh, doing on the COVID I front? I mean, it's hard to keep track of everyone. Yeah. Uh, yeah, lucky to get a bit of sunshine. It's been a while since I've had that. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, very simply, Joe, you get tested uh, uh, before you go. Um, and then within, uh, and, and then when you get over to the European Tour, you get tested to go into the bubble again. So very simple, um, two tests and, and you're in the bubble. Uh, we stay, all the players stayed in the section of the hotel that was cordoned off from the public. So you had players, the caddies, TV and officials all in one section of the hotel. And you then drive and there's buses straight from there to the golf course. And you're not allowed to stop at any stage or go for petrol or a coffee or anything like that. It's just A to B, A to B every single day. Everybody eats in the same place and simple. Um, and then uh, come out of the bubble Sunday night, spend a couple of days with my brother and then came home yesterday. All right, very good. Uh, I guess this is basically a review of the year type deal. In more recent times, Lee Westwood, as we mentioned, won the race to Dubai. A. Lim Kim won the US Open on her US Open debut. Come back on Monday, five shots down into the uh, final round. She came back to win it. And there was the announcement, Peter Laurie, that the Irish Open, boy, did you lead everyone up the garden path last week. Your comments made the papers, you know. I know, uh, I got it wrong. I, Mount Juliet, first week of July. Mount Juliet, first week of July. Three and a half million prize money. Scottish Open the following week, eight million. Rolex event still. And then uh, the Open at Royal St. George's. Uh, which officially means that the uh, Peter Laurie's word on the street segment has died in its <laughs> one I week. was thrown under the bus, Joe. I was thrown <laughs> under the bus. If you weren't listening last week, uh, Peter came with bad news that the Irish Open uh, would be clashing with the WGC in 2021. Basically, no one would be there. It was going to be a complete disaster. And that lasted, what, for about a day? Was that, is that how long your, 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 your info was, was good for? No, I would say probably less than that. <laughs> you need to go back to your tried and trusted formula when you knew that Rory's wife was about to have a baby and said oh something I, th- I think something might be going on there you could have just gone with the I wouldn't be surprised if the Irish Open clashed with the WGC rather than you know really putting your entire reputation at stake mm. Paul McGinley you heard that from Dubai and cackled all the way to the course I'm told yeah, I, I was driving to the course one day and, and I was listening to podcasts and your podcast come up, so I listened to it. And when Pete said it, I thought, oh my God, have I missed something? And then when I got to the course, I went, checked through all my emails and the schedule. <laughs> and it was like, oh no. And at that stage, the horse had bolted. I couldn't save you, Pete. It was out there. You put it in the public well. domain. <laughs> what yeah, goes around know, comes around. <laughs> from long back, it was always going to be that day, uh, back to the, the date it was, a couple of weeks before the Open. 
And Paul, I, I know we pay you the big bucks for coming on this show, but would it yeah, be okay when, when Peter is, you know, telling these tales, if we were to just drop you a little text on the side <laughs> so we could actually yeah, clarify yeah. whether he's telling the truth before we yeah. put it out for broadcast? Well, I'll defend oh. him though. He's normally on the money. He's got some good yeah. insights. I hear more from there as well too. He gets some good insights. So then fellas are well connected. Remember, caddies are a great source of information. <laughs> It's, there's a, there's a touch of all the from. president's men to Peter's information. Like he, he meets Deep Throat <laughs> in a dark car park and gets all the kind of the inside scoop. <laughs> so you might have a word. <laughs> I'll let Pete paddle his own canoe. He's doing all right. Pete, I'm, I'm, I'll stick up for you. Well done, McGinnis. You always had my uh, back. Well done. <laughs> How many sources well, do you did, have, Peter? You did call the demise of Jordan Speed, didn't you? A number of years oh, ago when he was stop. up top of the world. Oh. And, you know, poor old Jordan has obviously fallen on tough times since. So, Pete, maybe he's a bit has. of a prophet sometimes. They think they know it all. And then you make one little mistake and they jump all over <laughs> you. you know? One. Nobody in the golfing industry will talk to us anymore because of you. <laughs> well, I, 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 I could be like that guy on Twitter giving out about the, you know, Irish Open being only worth three million. And it was seven million last year. So mm. Could be worse. Paul, do we view that as a bit of a... Result, Irish Open-wise, as in decent slot on the schedule. I mean, the Rolex thing was good and, 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 and you know, the money was good. I, I wouldn't say the Rolex event or that money brought in like an unbelievable field either. I don't know if the very top guys looked at the money and were kind of so blown away by it that they had to come. Like, will the three and a half million as opposed to seven million make a considerable difference? Are we still relying on kind of Irish hospitality and certain less concrete attractions when we're trying to get big players over for an Irish Open? Yeah, I think in the short term, Joe, uh, in the short term, you know, we're very lucky that, you know, the big draws, obviously Rory and Shane, you know, you'd hope that they will be playing. And then if John Rand comes back, you know, Ireland has always been good to him. I mean, that's a great field straight away before you yeah. put anybody on top. And that's what we are for the short term. But I, I, I'd be very optimistic about where the Irish Open is going to be uh, in the world schedule going forward. I really do, particularly with this alliance with the American Tour. You know, obviously it's been well uh, documented that, you know, the idea is that in time there will be some um, co-sanctioned events and, and shared fields um, between the European and PGA Tours. And obviously the Irish Open will be high uh, on that list of, of being one of those. So let's see how all that unfolds. Obviously, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing discussed on it at the moment, but it is certainly uh, broadly uh, discussed that we will have more, uh, more alignment and, and co-sanctioned events with it. And Irish Open is in a prime position for that with its history and all the great golf courses and also that particular date in the schedule. It's important we keep that date and don't give it away, you know, because uh, mm. leading, uh, leading into the Lynx run there that the Open Championship is, you know, I think the Americans... Um, I, I, I'm surprised they don't just absolutely staple diet, always come over and play a Lynx golf course the week before the Open. You know, I mean, can you ever think of a, a Federer or somebody trying to play Wimbledon w without practicing on, on grass the week or two beforehand? Of course mm. they do. Same way they go to the hard courts before the US Open. So uh, I think you might see that happen. Uh, you know, hopefully we'll see it open and Irish Open be part of that conversation. Okay, great. So, so we, we would have PGA Tour co-sanctioned with European Tour events on European soil at some stage, hopefully in the next, what, decade anyway? Yeah, certainly. Within, within, certainly, yeah. I'd, I'd think a lot, hopefully a lot quicker than that. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, uh, that's right. the plan is that we do work closer with them and we do um, have some kind of shared agreement in terms of field sizes. Whether it be a full 50-50 is open to debate. We don't know that yet, but there will certainly be, be one or the other. And that's the whole idea that we bring the two biggest tours together and, and kind of align the schedule a little bit better. Okay. And um, I guess if we kind of steer towards looking back at the year that was, uh, Premier League golf and the, the threat, uh, quote unquote, that that posed really blossomed this year. And, you know, I know this is around a long time and Greg Norman had his efforts foiled and there have been various attempts to form breakaway tours, but it felt quite uh, concrete. Does that remain a, a, a threat again, quote unquote, a threat to European tour and PGA tour? Is that still very much trying to get off the ground? I think so, Joe. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for them, but believe me, I was in the front line of a lot of those negotiations of what was going on there as a board member. And uh, absolutely, they, they were, they were gung-ho. They were very well armed with a huge, huge uh, amount of money that they wanted to help with the European Tour to, to promote a Premier League and the European Tour as part of it. Um, it was real legitimate and um, yeah, we, we weren't a million miles away from going down that road and you know, we had been talking for a number of years to the PGA Tour about some kind of an alignment anyway and with COVID and the re-emergence of the, of the Premier Golf League, obviously that accelerated the PGA Tour's interest 
Um, and you know, we we've decided to um, you know it would have been would have been worth more money to be honest if we'd have gone with the PGL, but we felt we you know as a members organisation, if we were a private equity organisation and we were entrepreneurs and we were dealing with it just as a pure board, um, we might well have had a different decision. But as a members organisation, we feel the best thing for the game of golf and for the members, particularly of the European Tour, is is to uh, you know forge closer links with the PGA Tour. Okay. So, gents, to try and capture the year, I mean, Nathan, you sort of start with the major winners and of them, Bryson DeChambeau jumps out in a way as like the most interesting story of the year. I know Dustin is player of the year, I would suspect, in most people's eyes. But in terms of the guy that you found yourself talking about week to week and then blew away the field at the US Open, surpassed expectations, the likes of Peter, for instance, had grave doubts that he could do it in a major without being severely punished. I dropped Peter's name in solely just to highlight anything he gets wrong, clearly. But uh, Bryson, I mean, 2020 was the year of Bryson, wasn't it? Yeah, sure was. It is strange doing a review of the year because ordinarily you're three, four, five months on from the last major. So it feels almost nostalgic looking back to a Masters victory rather than it being the most recent one and just a few weeks ago. But it does feel even now a while back that Bryson was the big deal and that we thought maybe he might go to Augusta, overpower it and reshape the entire game of golf. But it was a bloody good distraction for a while having Bryson DeChambeau. And he obviously is very much on top of brand Bryson and was more than happy to come out and talk the talk. And then obviously by winning the major, walk the walk as well. And I think maybe Augustus brought everybody back down to earth and calmed everyone down that this is an incredibly talented golfer who's worked his ass off. And we go back to that interview with Paul Harrington time and time again that you know, Harrington explaining quite clearly how he sees how Bryson has been able to do this. But, but Bryson DeChambeau has probably turned himself from, what, a top 20 golfer over the last year into somebody that you can see in the top five for the next two or three years. Hmm. Like, I don't think, Paul, we're, we're talking about, like, complete dominance here or anything like that. I mean, he, he was seventh longest off the tee at the US Open. We're just talking about a very, very, very good player who has now elevated himself to one of the world's best. But, I mean, he's by no means streets ahead, is he? No, he's not. Um, for, for me, I, I think he's just joined a party. You know, he's been mm. in the second tier, if you want to call it that, in terms of distance, most of his career to date. Um, and uh, now by becoming a big hitter, the game has become a lot easier for him. Um, it really is so hugely advantageous to hit the ball so far in the modern game. You know, Rory and DJ have been playing that game. John Ram's been playing that game uh, for a number of years. And one of the reasons for their big success is they're going in with seven irons when other guys are going in with five. And they're going in with nine irons when guys are going in with seven. And they're hitting par fives and two other guys can't get home. And, you know, you know, you add up all those odds, hole after hole after hole, and quantifiably, they've got a massive advantage. The game has become so much about big hitting. And uh, being a statistician that he is, he's, he's identified that. And uh, he's gone down the road of saying, right, I need to join this party. And that's what he's done. Yeah, you can say he's the longest in the game at the moment, but, not, but only by a short head. Um, he's not like he's 40 yards aside Rory McIlroy. He's not. Um, or 40 yards aside Dustin Johnson. He's not. But he's just joined a party of that premier division of big hitters which, who dominate the top of the world rankings. Hmm. He certainly comes across like a, um, a person who struggles to hit it that far. When you, when, you, when you say to me, he's not that far ahead of Rory, when Rory hits it hard, there's really, there's, you can't really tell whether he's, he's really smashed it or not because his rhythm is so good. When Bryson came out, he looked like his coordination had to be really spot on for him to hit us middle of the fairway or get it even close to the fairway. And we all said at the time, swinging it at that speed, you know, this mightn't last. And to me, I don't know, I think Bryson could be another, you know, Jordan Spieth initially because he's had his kind of run at things now. Whether next year proves that to be right or wrong, who knows. But he certainly doesn't look like he can, he can um, uh, what would you say, transfer this to a, to a very solid game. It looks like he's going to be very a hit and miss player rather than your Dustin Johnson or Rory are, are always going to be in contention. I, I, I'd agree with Peter. And as much as undoubtedly 2020, the talking point of the year has been Bryson in as much as all of a sudden you have a resurfacing of the argument about, oh my God, do we need to 
do something about the golf ball? Do we need something to do about the equipment? How are we going to manage golf courses in era when guys are happily hitting at 350 yards through the air off the tee? But like his accomplishments, though noteworthy, and obviously winning the US Open and being the only player under par are notable, no question. But like it pales in comparison to DJ, you know? Tour Championship winner, FedEx Cup winner, Northern Trust winner, lost the BMW Championship in a playoff to John Ram, like was there, thereabouts, and then wins the Masters. Like, there's just no comparison yeah. between the two, like in terms of, like on the golf course, Johnson is streets ahead, I think. Yeah, but D, yeah, on the golf course, but off the golf course. Yeah, sure. DJ is interesting to us. I think Bryson is interesting to the wider Sorry, who's public. the wider? Which wider? I, I know what you mean, but like, isn't he not just interesting to us as well? Because who, who, anyone who doesn't, isn't interested in golf couldn't care less whether Bryson DeChambeau, you know, is cutting corners or taking it over this or can hack it hard at a rough. You know, it's just like, this is very much a golf story and, it, and no less important for it being a golf story. But I don't see that Bryson DeChambeau has had much of an impact on a wider public. You know, uh, I think he's probably had more of an impact over the last year than Dustin Johnson has had over the last decade. Yeah. I think he's recognizable. He is unusual. He, as I say, he's very good on the brand side of things. When he was being Bruce Banner, everyone knew that. When he decided to become the Incredible <laughs> Hulk, he was very good at talking about that. And the non and there's not many golf writers left. You could see around the build-up to the majors this year, that Bryson, by and large, was the big talking point for those golf riders who come okay. in just for the majors. That as much as Dustin Johnson has clearly had a career far ahead of what Bryson DeChambeau has achieved, actually, I think for your average sports fan, if Dustin Johnson walks down the street, do they recognize him? I think Bryson DeChambeau is probably, not that it matters, more famous than Dustin Johnson right now. Well, given the relatively low ratings of even the premier golf events of the year, including the majors on an American TV viewing public, I take your point. I know exactly what you mean. (laughs) I know exactly what you're saying. I just think that it's, it's a lot of kind of neurotic talk about the imminent threat that Bryson poses to golf, the game we love. When in truth, I mean, I can't read the future, but I think Peter makes a very good point. Like when you watch him hit big ball, like he's, it's the effort that he's putting his body through is so considerable and so obvious that, and it's not just Peter saying it. There's lots of people are saying, it's like, does that body have, can it withstand that level of cruelty really to be a consistent performer at that level? We can all agree that the funniest moment of the year was the 11th at the Masters when he hooked it into the trees. I mean, that was just well, hilariously funny. I know um, him trying to hook it with the three wood out of the rough on the left when he made it where 10. he went out of bounds and that led to that big argument. <laughs> no, Jack Nicholas. That was hilarious. <laughs> Jack Nicholas watching on. I mean, it was amazing. And then like, that's not even mentioned the ant hole or Brooks Kepka throwing shade his way. So he was just <laughs> amazing. Uh, the interesting thing, Paul, is going to, you know, I, I still think uh, pre-Augusta, because he was so clearly not himself uh, last month, that I still think a lot of the talk is going to be about Bryson going into Augusta and can he overpower it. I was, re- I mean, I was a bit skeptical beforehand, but I was really disappointed at the extent to which he didn't have power at Augusta. There was like one quote-unquote wow moment on the ninth, I think, in the in the first round. But like for much of it, him and Ram were within ten yards of each other. I can think. I think it was at the weekend on the thirteenth. Him and his caddy saying. Can you hear it? Can you hear it? Because he cut the corner. And that was like, a, okay, that's a bit different moment. But I mean, I came away from Augusta saying he hasn't cut any corners. He hasn't made this course look too different to how it's looked over the last five, six, seven, eight, nine years. Back to maybe Bubba Watson kind of did some funky things, obviously, with his power. So he was so disappointing lengthwise at Augusta. And he was clearly so ill. I'm, I'm holding out a sneaking hope that we might see something a bit nuts from him in 2021. At the Masters, I mean. Yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure, Joe. I mean, look, first of all, he, he, he's a smart guy, right? Um, Augusta was really disappointing for him. He'll go away, he'll lick his wounds, and he'll come back. This guy's smart. He's a statistician. He's got a great team around him. These scientists, uh, these boffins all figure things out. They'll come away with a whole load of extra data 
coming away from Augusta National of what they need to do going forward. He might not just hit driver everywhere. There was a lot of places with hitting driver that wasn't really necessary. And I, I think he'll, he'll regroup and come back. But there's, I agree with what the boys were saying there. There's a lot of weaknesses in his game. He's, he's not the finished article anywhere near the way Rory is or the way DJ is or the way Ram is. There's a lot of weaknesses. Um, and uh, he's a very good putter. So I wouldn't discard the fact that he can't win around Augusta. But he has to figure it out yet. Um, and he's nowhere near figuring it out. It might take him a few more years before he figures ex- exactly what the formula is for him around Augusta. It's not, remember, you know, and I, I was talking about this in the build-up too. I remember being on the show with you. You know, he had a number of, of opportunities in uh, wh- where he won uh, the US Open, uh, being able to run the ball onto the greens because there was no trouble short of the greens. That's not the case at Augusta. You've either got water, you've got bunkers, or you've got a, a, an elevated green. So you've got to be playing from the fairway. It's really important around Augusta National in order to, to, to be able to attack the golf course. Yes, there's a lot of birdie opportunities around it, but you can't overpower it the way you can, um, you know, he did at the US Open, where even if he got in the rough, he could then chase it on the green from there. Mm. Um, so I think he'll go away. He'll figure it out. He'll come back. He'll have a different strategy. You mightn't see it as aggressive. Um, and I quite honestly think he believed a lot of his own hype post-US Open, you know. Um, he was posting numbers of what he was doing and he was – you know, posting over 200 yard speed and posting a ball that went 400 yards and all that. And I believe he got caught up in the hype of it and didn't apply himself. I remember putting something out on Twitter and all the other players were doing the same. Justin Thomas, Dustin Johnson, Rory, mm. they're all posting numbers of what their speed was. It's like, hey guys, wait a minute. You know, get, you know, get, get to what Augusta National is about, which is arm play. You know, practice your distance control. I bet your bottom dollar that Tiger wasn't prepared and I know he didn't play well, but he wasn't preparing uh, for Augusta by trying to work on his speed. You got to work on your on your distance control. You know, and I'm a great believer in preparing for the exam, um, and I think he, he he got caught up in the hype of what happened at the U.S. Open in his preparation for the U.S. Uh, for the U.S. Masters, and uh, he'll come back. Don't yes. worry. Don't write this guy off. This guy is not to be written off. But I also agree with the point um, there that Fionn was saying, um, which my worry would be, and speaking to some of the sports scientists who were involved in the game, really clever, well-educated, smart guys. The biggest challenge for him going forward is to be remain injury free. With the amount of bulk he's put on in a short period of time, that that not just the practicing, uh, not not just the speed he has in the golf course, but the amount of practice and gym work that he's doing, you know, it, at the, it there's a high tariff there that he's going to somehow do himself an injury, and he's got to be really careful with that. Okay, mm-hmm. do you remember uh, Paul, do you remember at Harding sorry. Park when he leaned down, hit the drive, leaned down to pick up the tee peg and snap the driver? Yeah. Yeah, that's like, what is that? I don't know, mass plus bulk equals density or whatever the hell, you know, mm. he's a big lad. That was a brand exercise. I've no doubt he snapped his club off camera and then went, Like oh. Phil Mickelson, <laughs> who launches his own brand of coffee and then walks around with a coffee mug. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Always um, be closing, Phil. So Paul, uh, Dustin Johnson is clearly player of the year, is he? By distance, oh, yeah. FedEx, I, Masters, I, 36 yeah. years old. What does the future hold over the next two, three years for Dustin is the question. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, at the moment, all these guys, it's like the stock market. They go through peaks and troughs, and he's going through a peak at the moment. This time last year, we were talking about Rory. Rory was in the middle of a peak. Every time he played, he was top five. He was winning the odd event. It was a matter of time before, you know, he was winning the next tournament. Every time he turned up, he was playing great. Started this year, it was the same. And he was in the middle of a peak, and then he's got, now he's gone into a trough. And at the same time, Dustin has come up. He's in a, he's in a peak at the moment. Is it going to last for another nine months, 12 months, 15 months? Unlikely, you know. And if he sustained this, I'd be really surprised. I mean, I think if I remember rightly, six of the last seven events before the Masters, he was top two. I mean, that's a phenomenal run of form. The game is too intrinsically difficult at the elite level. And there's so much competition to keep that kind of form up. So, you know, it's very quickly, we're very quick to jump on the bandwagon of uh, somebody wins and all of a sudden mm. the whole world's going to open up for them. We did it with Morikawa, you know, and you do it with Dustin, you think, oh my God, now the world is his oyster. But you got to understand that's the ebbs and flows of professional golf. They come into form, they go out of form, they, they're up and they're down. And he's at, he's at a peak at the moment. Unfortunately, the end of the season has come at the wrong time for him. He wishes to another couple of majors lined up. Yeah. Recent um, history seems to suggest when you are at that peak, Paul, you need to make hay. If you look uh, over yeah. the last decade, when Rory was at his peak, he won them quickly. Jordan Speed yeah. won them quickly. Brooks Kepka won yeah. them quickly. That yeah. actually, DJ, that he's finally got there, and obviously he's probably a decade older than all those players were when they went through that, if not more, that actually yeah. the next 18 months, you've got to try and accumulate them as, as rapidly as you can. 
Yeah, but what was really impressive, Nathan, for me at the at the US at, at the US Masters was the fact that he figured out a way of playing the golf course. He had a great yes, his game was in good form, but his patience, his resilience, his ability to stick to his game plan was really important. He had a game plan going in there. You know, the first five times he played there, he was nowhere. The last four times he's played there, he's been top ten. He's getting used to this golf course and, and he's figuring it out. And and you know, you know, there's a lot of a lot of ridicule about, about his IQ, but his golfing IQ, you know, he's he had came there with a really good golf um, you know, golf plan of how he was going to attack that golf course, where he was going to attack, where he was going to defend, how he was going to manage the golf course. That's what was most impressive about him. And that's what I've seen uh, that's been a step up for Dustin, certainly in the last three or four months. And um, I think uh, I think Bryson will do the same. I really do. I think don't write this guy off just because it went really badly there. He'll go mm. back, he'll lick his wounds and come back again. Mm. I mean, the other, then the third major winner then to, to wrap up our major winners was Morikawa. To be fair, Paul, I remember you were on the show after he won and I was getting very carried away and saying, you know, will he win five? Will he win six? Maybe seven? You know, this guy's the real deal. And you, were, you weren't so sure. It is worth restating though, 22 straight cuts to start his career, three shy of Tiger Woods' record. So suddenly he's up to 44th in the world and then COVID hits. And then not even a beat, he resumes post-COVID. Uh, the Charles Schwab was where he missed that short put. And then he came back and won at Muirfield. And then Harding Park. Like there was a lot of, you know, Matthew Wolf was very good in that final round. Paul Casey was in there playing very well. DJ was hanging around. And he plays all the right shots, not least at the 16th. That's possibly shot of the year, uh, where he makes his eagle and wins the tournament in amazing fashion. So, I mean, you feel like Morikawa... Uh, Wolf and Hovland, maybe, possibly to a lesser extent. I don't know. They're the three who are catching the eye of the next generation. I think so. Yeah, um, you know, Marikawa is is a terrific player. Statistics are phenomenal. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how quickly he's hit the ground running from tee to green. But his short game still has a lot of work to do. What's really surprising? You mentioned all those young guys coming on, and and what's really surprising if you look at them statistically over the two years they've been on tour, all of them are very strong tee to green. They hit the ball great. They're very strong in strokes gained, tee to green, strokes gained approach. They're strong in all of those areas. But both of them, in all three players that we talked about, in, in Hovland, Wolf, and, uh, and Morikawa, their short games are, are, are the weakest parts uh, of, their, of their dynamic as golfers. So uh, may, maybe that, you know, that's the area certainly got to be improved because you're not going to be successful if you don't have a really uh, smart, you know, sharp uh, short game. And, and I think with Morikawa... The reason why he won that, uh, that uh, PGA Championship was as much as he played well, but it was because he led the putting stats that week. So he went from like 140th in the putting stats all season long to all of a sudden having his best putting uh, week uh, that he's ever had and led that putting stats and, and went on to win by a shot. So, you know, with your best putting stats, bearing in mind how good a player he is, T.T. Green, he should have won by seven or eight or nine if he was going to be the next incarnation of, of Tiger Woods. So... But still, a lot of credit to him how he finished it off. Yes, it was a great shot on 16, but he also got a good break. He came in off the camber, you know, and rolled down to eight feet. He was able to manage to put and diss himself away. And I also think he's, I think, you know, speaking to a lot of the guys last week um, who, who um, you know, in Dubai got to spend a lot of the time with the guy, not, guys, not just um, not just on the range, but at dinners at night and things like that, because we're all in the same restaurant every night in the buffet and chatting and what's going on and how everybody's seen the season. And it's very clear the experienced guys are putting down the lack of crowds to be in a massive advantage as to why the main reason why a lot of these young players have come through. Yes, they're very good players, but the intensity, um, the pressure of trying to get over the line, the oohs and the ahs that go round of good shots and bad shots, and then having to react hitting your next shot after you get a new of hitting the bad shot. Um, you know, 20,000 people, um, you know, incredulous that you could hit a shot in the water and then dropping it on a downslope and how are you going to play it from there? And, and they really feel that, that uh, you know, lack of crowds, lack of atmosphere, lack of intensity has certainly helped a lot of these young guys get the footing in the professional game. And do you buy that as, or is that the old timers grumbling over dinner? Yeah, I know. I take a bit of pinch of salt, but I do buy a lot of it. I, I mean, I, I know myself and people tell you from experience, you know, when you're hitting it into a, into a big crowd and you've hit a terrible shot and everybody's going ooh or ah, or you've hit a five foot putt and everybody goes ooh because you've missed it and then it's gone two and a half feet by. The next two and a half footer is not easy. <laughs> um, so I, I think there is, there, is a, there is an element to it, all right. Mm. Isn't, that, uh, isn't that what they were saying? Definitely, what, is it at the Charles Schwab with the amazing putts made, is it Justin Thomas and Marikawa, that one of them wouldn't have made that putt had the crowd been there because the noise of the crowd yeah. would have, you know, there isn't that still calm that just allows you to focus and just yeah. focus on your own putts. So, I mean, um, sorry, Joe, you mentioned a whole bunch of newcomers. Can I just add one more name? And I'd be curious as to what Paul and Peter think. 
I think Sung J M, and yeah. because he's Korean, so he doesn't really feature in a lot of golf writers' talk. But this is a guy, rookie of the year last year, winner of the Honda, performed brilliantly at the Masters. Like he's got game. You know, yeah, funny I, you should I, mention him. Uh, sorry, Peter. I just little insight ahead. first before you go in. Uh, funny you should mention him because uh, my brother came to the golf on Sunday in Dubai. Uh, he's living out there, and uh, um, he he rang me up on Saturday night. He says, "Right," he said, "I'm all set to come." He said, "I'm gonna, you know, um, I'm I'm gonna go out and and watch JP's caddying for Victor Perez." He said, "Anybody else I should watch?" And I said, "Well, actually, I've been watching them all on the range this week. The guy you should go and watch is a guy called this guy Im." He said, really? Uh, I said, yeah, go and watch him a few holes. This guy is a superb ball striker and a great chipper as well, too. Unlike mm-hmm. the point I made earlier about the short game, this guy's got, got a really, really good short game. So absolutely spot on there. Great insight there. Go ahead, Pete. You want to say something? Yeah, I, well, remember before the, on our Masters preview, exactly what you said. I, I had fancied a, a fellow who had come up to the Masters and who had never played the Masters before and had a chance to get through Fuzzy Sellers record of first time playing in the masters to win and it was all about the galleries um not being there you know augusta was going to be totally different and i would totally agree the all the golf courses and all the tournaments without galleries it's you're just playing the score really you're not nobody's putting you off um and a lot of guys you know find it difficult to concentrate sometimes with with so many people around the place and you know, at galleries and shouting at them and roaring and whatever yeah. else. Um, and the movement as well. There's a lot of movement yeah. at a golf tournament. And that can be, you know, when there's only, um, when, when there's nobody there, you know, I mean, you know, Tiger was well versed in that, you know, I mean, particularly with the big crowds following him, you know, he, he knew if he finished out early in a hole that everybody was going to move to the next tee and then the, his playing partners had to put with all this movement going on. So, you know, there was all, you know, there's definitely an advantage. There's no way, it, it can't be a downside. It cannot be a downside um, for a rookie and a young guy finding his way on, in the game um, to be able to play uh, a year this year without crowds. And Marikawa said it himself right after he won the PGA Championship. You know, certainly the lack of intensity and pressure um, mm. because of no crowds uh, helped the lack of, you know, him um, able to get over the line. And, and he, he gave credit to the fact that there was no crowds to help him being a major champion. Paul, when you're out and about then, and you mentioned those three players have come through so brilliantly and all won this season in uh, Wolf, Marikawa and Hovland and their short game, and that being the weak area, are you seeing a difference in the length of time the players are spending concentrating on that part of the game? Like, is it all now just about power? And I know the three of them are very different in terms of the length that they are off the tee. But is it quite noticeable among young players that actually they're just not that bothered about the short game? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things uh, going on there. I, I think um, the first thing is a lot of them play, you know, college golf in America. And then the step up to the golf courses that you play in the PGA Tour is not a massive step. Um, so the golf courses tee to green are similar, but I think around the green certainly changes. So they're probably getting used to it in that regard. Uh, the greens are quicker. There's more rough around the greens. Um, and it, it just, it's a little, it's, it is definitely different than, than the, the green that they would have had. Um, but you know what? They'll figure it out. You know, Hovland's a really poor chipper, you know. Uh, um, you know, so maybe some technique has to be fixed there. And you can fix the technique. You know, we've seen guys come on. I mean, Lee Westwood was terrible with the chipper some six or seven years ago. He could hardly get it on the green. And, you know, now, although he mightn't be as elegant with the, with the chip shots, he still plays them very well and is able to get them up to four and five feet. And he's always been a very good putter. So, you know, you, you can get over that with, with, with improved technique. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just think that the big difference is that the greens being a bit quicker and, and, and around the greens on, on – on the PGA Tour is slightly different than you would have experienced in college. It's funny on, on Hovland, I was watching one evening and Faldo was in commentary and he was bemoaning the fact that Hovland chips by taking the club away on the inside. And he was like, yeah. I've never yeah. seen a good chipper take it away on the inside. How has no one told him this in the last 10 years? Yeah. A really good point, Joe. And it's funny you should talk about that because I was talking to Pete Cowan about that, who's a short game coach for a lot of these guys. And a lot of people put rate Pete as a better short game coach than a long game coach. And, um, you know, I've always had, had a view and I was asking Pete about it. So Pete, you know, I've always had this view. In general, faders of the ball are great chippers. And uh, then he explained, he agreed with me and he explained to me why. And it was all about what you said about the club going back square to outside the line. And from there, the club is in front of you and you're just turning it onto it from there and, 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 and using the bounce and, 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 and using the club in the correct way. You're not fighting it. You're not trying to find the ball down the bottom if you're coming too much from the inside. So I think if you look back to, uh, you know, Justin Johnson fades the ball, brilliant chipper of the ball. 
Um, look at Jimenez, that inside and then over the top move with his chip and his brilliant. He's always been a great chipper. So the guys who come down slightly on the outside with the chipper, it's certainly, uh, uh, that's the way to chip. It, mm -hmm. It's very hard to chip from the inside. You were a good chipper, Peter, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I suppose going going on... on, on I love on the just, arrogance there. You're meant to say, <laughs> oh, oh well, good. maybe. I don't no, know, maybe, I guess. Well, there was a post in fairness. You should have just rammed it. I, I, I was a decent chipper. But uh, why I was a decent chipper, chipper, but I used to play games the whole time in practice. Like my practice sessions would be against somebody on, around the green. I don't know whether these guys do the same thing. Paul, you'd probably be able to tell me because you're there more often than I, I would be now. Um, like I, I used to play, used to play Paul around the green, McGindley, uh, um, sorry, Harrington, um, McGrain, you know, uh, Shane used to play chipping games uh, around the green for a few quids. And, and it, it, it would, it, the, intense, the intensity in your practice was always very good for your practice. Hmm. Um, it got you sharp. It, it it showed you. It you got up close to see how other people chipped it as well. You know, hmm. um, I I don't know whether these guys do the same thing or not, but it's one thing that it's spectacular for your chipping, rather than just hmm. standing there hitting chip after chip after chip. When you go to different places, um, it, it, it's much better for your chipping. I had. You, you know I who's a brilliant. Sorry, sorry, come on, go ahead. Go on, Paul. And I was just going to say, you know who's a brilliant chipper and never ever ever gets credit for it. And you ask any of the guys on tour, and he'll come out as the top five chippers in the game. Is Rory? Nobody ever gives Rory credit for how good a chipper he is. He is fantastic, really fantastic. And I mm. remember being down in Portugal a few years ago, um, and they closed the back nine so he could go out and play if he wanted to play a few holes and and practice. And 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 that's what he was doing. He was uh, he uh, the ball was thrown to him, and he would chip it. And then he would walk onto the green and he would mark it and then put it out and then the ball would be thrown back. And that's, that's what he did. It was all about seeing how many times he could get down and two from around six or seven chips around the back of every green. And, and that, that competitiveness is really important. I, I was going to say on a far less uh, <clears throat> uh, interesting way, but like when I first started playing golf, and so, and Paul would know this, that I, I played a lot of golf around Dunfanaghy. And um, Kieran and Seamus McMonagall used we used to play games of first to five with chips, and it was like they were murderous. Like you know, it was like it was hyper competitive. But like, and if you got nearest the hole, you decided where the next drop was. And we could spend hours just playing around different greens. Obviously, we wouldn't tell Paul McGinley, the greenkeeper, um, the other Paul McGinley, uh, that we were doing the real Paul McGinley. Yeah. <laughs> I found that that, uh, that was a brilliant way of learning how to chip, um, was just playing those very same games. Hmm. Well, um, to segue then into Rory, and by the way, this had passed me by, but somebody has given Victor Hovland the name Stoned Rory, which is just the best uh, nickname. <laughs> it's, it's just so good. And he quite likes it himself, actually. He's got a sense of humor about it himself. <laughs> I can't look at him anymore. Uh, so Rory, Peter, you were pretty frustrated with Rory after uh, Gusta. We all were. We, I, I tend to bump into two types of listeners, and Nathan and I touched on this before. The ones who come up and say, you're too soft on Rory. And then the ones who come up and say, you're going way too hard on Rory. You've got to be fair. Give the guy a chance. You've got to have some realistic expectations. I was disappointed. His, yeah, his year has been probably disappointing for him. Um, I, I thought he would have kicked on a bit. I thought he would have got a major. Um, but there again, you look at his world ranking ranking position hasn't changed from last year. Um, we've had COVID. He played great before the the lockdown, and then after the lockdown, he struggled. New baby um, arrived. You know, family matters more than anything else. So um, I, I think next year might be Rory McIlroy's year. To be honest, and. How much does he want it? That is probably the question that he has to ask himself. I think there's something in what Paul just said about his chipping. So you, it all goes under the radar that he is an excellent chipper because the standard by which we want to judge Rory McIlroy is Tiger Woods at the very, very best of his competitive self, where he had the best short game in the world, I would argue, better than Mickelson, better than anybody. And because you don't see Rory being as outlandishly genius as that, but 
not far off it in terms of just consistently being able to chip it from any lie um, and getting it on the green, moving towards the hole. We judge him by a standard that we judge few others for two reasons. One, because of his talent, and two, because he's Irish. And that's that's just the way it is. And, you know, so you can go hard on him, you can go soft on him. One way or the other is we want Rory to win. It's disappointing when he doesn't perform to our expectations of him. But at the same time, we endeavor to try and understand that it's golf is a really, really bloody hard game and you can't win every week. And, you know, what else are you going to say? You know, how else is there to deal with? Mm. It is that tempering of expectations that that second cohort who get quite annoyed when they're listening and say, you're far too harsh on Rory constantly. But I don't really want to temper my expectations. No, nor me. Rory. Like he's not, I don't want to pick out, like he's not Tyrrell Hatton. I don't like Tyrrell Hatton's having a fine couple of seasons, but you like, if, you, if Rory wants us to judge him like Tyrrell Hatton, fine. I don't think he does because he's not that type of player. We all expected Rory would go on and win more majors than any other European. That hasn't happened. It doesn't mean he's had a bad career. Nobody's ever saying that Rory McIlroy has had, uh, has had a disappointing career. But from where he was six years ago to where he is now in terms of majors, which is where ultimately they're always going to be judged players of that caliber, it hasn't been what any of us expected. No. And everyone does want him to go on and go and dominate next year, complete the career Grand Slam, get to seven, eight majors. But it's going to be bloody difficult when you look at the quality of players that are there with Johnson, Ram, DeChambeau. They can't all win seven or eight majors. No. Nathan, I'd go you one better and say, not only is he not Tyrrell Hatton, he's not Ricky Fowler, he's not Justin Rose. Like, you know, Justin Rose has a major to his name. Ricky Fowler is a winner. I know he's having a rough time of it at the moment. But like, we, we, we expect Rory... Rory exists in a level above those guys. That's just, you know, four-time major winner, the most outstanding natural talent of his generation, perhaps. Like, you know, I agree. I don't want to temper my expectations. Isn't that the issue that the most outstanding natural talent of his generation is falling so short at key moments of his career for six years now? It's a massive trend. There are several issues he's not addressing year on year on year as wedges for one thing, his approach play, it's just not good enough. I mean, he yeah. can tell himself it's good enough, it's not. The putting thing, I don't mind as much because I think you're born a certain way, you don't get everything. I, I, there's an allowance for that almost. There's an understanding that that's really tricky and he's going to have some horrible days in the greens and some great days in the greens. So he'd never persecute him over that. No. Um, ben Hogan like, was a rubbish putter. Well, of course, yeah. Look, he, wanted, he wanted puts to Ken for half a stroke, you know? Um, there's days we all feel like that. But I mean... <laughs> at, Paul, at, I have at, to ask Paul this question. Did you see, did you see Porrick's tweet um, with his, um, what is his 14th Christmas for the Ryder Cup? He wished you a happy birthday. Happy birthday, by the way. Um, but he, he, said to you, he said about you were an, an unlucky putter. Did you see this? I, I did, yeah. I was texting him last night about it. Yeah, yeah. wow. <laughs> And then you hold the putt in the uh, to win the Ryder Cup. Yeah. I thought it was hilarious. I really did. That, that was his irony, wasn't it? Mm. That of all the guys yeah. to hold a putt, I wasn't the guy <laughs> to pick. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Rory. <laughs> just to just to finish the point, and then Paul, please come in. Like, if you take Augusta as a microcosm of all the frustrations, it's that first round, and it's you know nine swings of two different clubs on the driving range, and then back out for a second round, and suddenly things are right again and he's playing good stuff. And I mean, the worry is, the worry is that, you know, he has a problem with performing under pressure at the moment. And that's not, you know, like that's not easy. And I, what Fionn says is true. It's not an easy sport, but um, like that performance in the first round at Augusta was really worrying, I would say. Uh, Not least because he drove the ball spectacularly rounds two to four. I mean, it was exhibition stuff. Mm -hmm. And look, look at what he did in the first round with his driver. So that's not technique. Whatever, okay, the wedge thing is an issue. You've got to sort that out as well. But that was all psychological. And so you wonder behind the scenes, is he getting himself into a headspace where he wants to come out fighting? You know, the people around him. There's a reason the people around him showed him the Brooks Kepka tweet, a text that, you know, Kepka was saying, I'm going to crush Rory. There's a reason somebody in his camp thought, I'm going to show Rory this. And... Um, I don't know. I just worry he's not in the right headspace where he's a little bit peeved and a little bit angry. And if he needs to put a picture of Tom Weisskopf up on his, on his mirror or something to get him going, 
I, I would wonder who he's talking to psychologically. I mean, chats in the green with Brad Faxon are good and everything, but um, the Masters thing, that first round, Paul, I just thought, oh, you're kidding. That's another great, great chance gone. You get 10 more of these maybe. Yeah, I agree 100% in everything you say, Joe. I think you've analysed that really well. Um, I think the flip side of some, some so talented and, and one so talented, um, and it's not just us saying it here as Irish. Everybody on tour says it. All the guys in America even say it. You know, the, you know, the, the most talented player is Rory McIlroy. Um, now, the flip side of that is it brings a massive amount of expectation. Rory knows that. You know, he knows he's got an edge. He, you know, he finds the game. It's not a particularly difficult game to him. Um, um, but I, I agree with you. I, I think there's definitely some challenges there. Um, on the mental side that he hasn't overcome yet and, and that's what's holding him back when it comes to the major championships there's performance anxiety when it comes to the majors and I, I think uh, that's a fair point to say that and the number of times I mean I know myself haven't played you know you blow yourself out in the first round and then when the pressure is all gone off you go um, and you know and people say oh it's always the first round no it's not because he, he started with 67 in the US Open and then shot 74 75 in the second round, uh, once he got himself in the contention. So th- there's definitely something to be overcome there. But you know what? Um, I-, I think uh, what we've seen from Rory is that, I-, I agree with you, I've always said that, and I think you were referring to there as the pointy elbows. That's when he's at his best. Um, when he kind of takes the shackles off and just looks forward and goes. And, and it's normally because something has really pissed him off and, and he's going forward on that regard. Or there's a, there's a goal out there that really means a lot to him and he's absolutely going for it. Um, and, and that's the mentality, that freedom. When he talks about freedom, I think that's what he's referring to. Mm. Um, you know, I, I don't think the answer here is that Rory needs to work harder. Um, I, I think he worked hard enough. Um, I think uh, the answer is not a short, his wedge game. I know we all pigeonhole him with his wedge game, but if you look at his wedge game, actually from 125 yards down to 75 yards, he's actually really strong, if not better than everybody else of his peers at the top of the game. You don't have to be Zach Johnson with the wedges in order to be, you know, the Tiger Woods. Um, but his putting is the one area that comes in and out. But, you know, you saw how well he put it in Augusta National. And I really do think down the lines of where he's going, now that he's got the technique from Phil Kenyon, now down the lines of that, that inspiration that he got from, from being around Brad Faxon is the way forward for him. That's the formula. I talk about unlocking the formula, everybody finding out what their formula is. That's Rory's formula. He's found it now with the putting. He, had it with, he always had it with the driver. He's pretty much got it with the arm play. But he hasn't unlocked this formula of overcoming this performing anxiety when it comes to majors um, and, and only doing it when he gets out of contention. But I think he will. I, I, you know, I, I think what we've seen from him is he, he's able to unlock these things and come back stronger. Um, you know, he's a hell of a much better putter now than he was three years ago. And, and mm. you know, if I about the inspiration um, or the stimulation of finding somebody that might just ignite that in him. Um, and and I, I think he will. I really do. I, I think he will. And when he does, he'll go. He'll go again and he'll, he'll win a, a number of majors in quick succession because you can't say he lacks heart or guile or anything like that. But no. he does. That, that expectation on his shoulders weighs very heavily. Yeah. Mm. Can I ask the way he's analyzed. Sorry, I was just thinking the way he's analyzed. It's, uh, he sort of golfs Paul Pogba. That I think back <laughs> to Gary Neville, yeah. in a couple of different ways, in that you, like you can't criticize Paul Pogba in one way because he's done it all. Yeah. Like he is a World Cup winner and he's been an inspirational figure in a World Cup winning side. He surely can win world titles. But Gary Neville on it last year in the show we did with him that when you're at Manchester United, when you're the main man, there's a level of expectation that comes with that that isn't really comparable to anywhere else. And because of all McElroy's achieved there's a level of expectation that isn't comparable with anybody else. And that means people are very harsh at times or comes across as being particularly harsh. But like Pogba, I think his, his fellow players have a lot of respect for him. Like you never hear anything out of Manchester United from the dressing room overly critical of Paul Pogba. And likewise, his fellow players have a huge amount of respect for what Rory can do. But because he's achieved so much so young, it's always going to be hanging over him. I'm worried now that this is going to end up as the headline that Rory McIlroy is uh, golf's Paul Pogba. Uh, when Sean is at the range, Peter, <laughs> I'm not comparing him to Mino Raiola, uh, Paul Pogba's agent, in any way. Right. I, w- I would say, I mean, I, I think that's such a fair point as well. Like, if Rory had, did, had done what John Ram did by topping, hooking that ball, eighth it might have been, you know, we'd be having like, be like a breakdown on the podcast about it. You know what I mean? So I, I would share the optimism. I do, think, I do think this year will jar with him. I do like I, I I suspect he's he's frustrated himself. I think he has the putting is much improved. I'd give him a great chance, Augusta. I think he's going to come out in a really good uh, frame of mind again. He was brilliant at the start of this year, you know, 
I don't know if we believe in times of year and playing well times of year. I'd be very optimistic that he might give Augusta a, a, a totally different run. I think someone is as good as coming quick succession. You know, it's like a year of pent up stress or whatever. You know, when you bad shot and you drop a ball again and just hit it much better the next time. There's a degree of that about this Augusta. There's a degree of like, oh, Jesus. Okay, why was I so nervous? Right, let's go. I'm close to almost tipping him without even seeing him early doors in 2021. Peter Laurie? Very early to start tipping somebody <laughs> now. Oh. Seekers. Uh, yeah. yeah, we must. We'll write that one down. I must take note of that now. Do you share Joe's the optimism? Do you share, like yeah. Paul's? Paul said he's going to win majors again. Do you share that optimism? I, I do share the optimism. Yeah, and I, I think I spoke to you fair before. Um, in in relation to, he he's the only person, um, that can solve this, um, this performance, um, problem that he has when it comes to majors. And um, can and he 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 can go and see um, Brad Fax and he can go and see the best psychologists that are out there. Um, but at the end of the day, he's the guy who's standing up on the tee and and and, and performing. Um, and funny enough, when Paul was talking there, the first person I thought of was Greg Norman, um, and he had this wonderful career. Um, but never well, well, struggled to get over the line in many majors. Um, he rarely shot himself in the foot uh, in round one, but seemed to always shoot himself in the foot on the back nine of a major. Um, and that can only be, as you said earlier on, you know, a, a performance issue of, of a mental state rather than a, a physical state. So I think when Rory looks at himself come January one and he says, right, what am I going to do for the year? I, I I hope um, that when the Masters comes around, he will be prepared um, mentally rather than physically for the test at hand. Mm. Okay. Can, can I just make a point there, Joe, yeah. on on you know the mental thing? Um, again, talking from experience, it's funny when when Peter's probably the same. As you go through your career and you come out the other side and you look back in on the game and you see it, you're not as emotionally attached to the game, you're a little bit more detached and, and you can see things a little bit clearer and then you look back in your own career and you think, God, I wish I'd have done that, I wish I'd have done that, that's what he needs to do, I wish I'd have done that and I had a situation like that and I didn't deal with it. You know, what's really important what, 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 with all of these things is a strategy. You just don't go out and, you know, have a few chats with somebody and all of a sudden you're in a good space and you go out and you play well. You've got to have a strategy because those feelings are going to come again on the golf course. And I'll just tell a little story about um, um, uh, First Ryder Cup in, in 2002. And um, we pictured a scene Saturday afternoon. Myself and Darren were playing the last game. I made a four in the last hole in the four ball to win the hole, to half our game for the team to be going in, into the, into the uh, singles level. And I was absolutely on a high. Go back to the team room. Everybody's high five and we're on a high as a team. Everybody's just so excited now that, you know, it's, we, it was an incredible half that we got. The golf was unbelievable. We're playing Furyk and I think Scott Hoke. And, and it, we go back then and we, and, we, and we have a team meeting about half an hour later and everybody's buzzing in there and everybody's so excited that Sam gives the meeting and, and, and uh, at the end, Sam says, right, anybody got anything to say? And I picture this wasn't like a team meeting room that, that you have now with the Ryder Cups. This was in Sam's bedroom. We were laying on Sam's bed <laughs> and uh, everybody was on the floor. You know, it was, uh, and um, as we were finishing, um, he said, anybody, any questions? And Jesper Parnovic said, yeah, I've got something to say. Um, he said, uh, I just want to know, uh, I just want to let the rookies know that, and particularly you, Paul, um, you've just come off a high here. Um, you've played an amazing game today. It's been great. We've got the point. Amazing way you played the last hole to win it. And, you know, you're on a high at the moment. And remember going out tomorrow in the singles, there's 12 matches. There's not four. The intensity completely changes. It's a very lonely place in the singles. And be prepared for that tomorrow because that's going to come at you. And you're going to feel really lonely at some stage out there, particularly early in the round, because you're going out at the end of the order and bam, bam, bam. So I kind of listened to him and I thought, yeah, yeah, but now I'm, I'm excited, I'm buzzing, I can't <laughs> wait to get going. Sure enough, go out the next day and we come to the third hole of par five. And bearing in mind, there's 25,000 20, people around that 18th hole when I played the previous night. And I go out the next day and I'm playing Jim Fury for number nine. I can hear all the roars coming from the top of the golf course and Monty and whoever was out at the top of the order where all the crowd were following. And I was waiting for Jim to play his pitch shot into the third hole of par five. And I counted there was seven people behind the green. 
And immediately this feeling came over me of loneliness and it's like, you know, irrelevance. And it was like, and then immediately I thought of what, what Parnovic said about, you know, hang in there because when this comes and you have to, you have to overreact to it, be ready for it because just hang in, try to make a couple of pars because what will happen is the intensity will rise again and you'll feel more in, into it as you get onto the back nine and those games finish and people come back to watch it. And the point is I recognized that I was able to steady the ship, I was able to make a couple of pars and of course, you know, things evolved and I ended up going on to hold a winning putt. But the point about it was there was a strategy there and if Jesper hadn't have said that at the team meeting the night before, I wouldn't have been prepared for that feeling and I probably would have been unnerved as a rookie and I probably might have you know, lost my game three and two or four and three and lost a couple of holes at that time. So, you know, strategies are really important. Feeling nervous and feeling tight and all of those things, which Rory has done many times, you know, getting over them. It's like, you know, a, a soccer player, I remember Martin O'Neill making a point about, you know, it's a time to put the foot in the ball, you know, and slow it down in midfield. Um, you know, the other team is attacking you, attacking you, attacking you. You've got to pass sideways. You've got to slow it down, take the intensity, suck the atmosphere out of the game, you know, die it down a bit, get a little bit more stable. And then, you know, as you do that and you get that stability, then, the, you know, the confidence comes back and then you start feeling, oh, okay, now the shackles are going off again, off I go forward. Mm -hmm. So the important thing is to, is, is to, when you have this feeling, is not to lose ground. You know, a pars are never a bad thing, you know, hanging around, hanging around, making a par, getting it up and down, not hitting it in the water like he did on 16 and that first day. You know, he, he was coming back and he looked like he was on trending for a 71. And then he hit this terrible pull hook with an eight iron where everybody was making two. If you remember that pin position on 16 on the first day was front yeah. right and a big slope behind it. And he, and he took a five there and he, and he fizzled out to, to what, 74, 75. And his tournament was over, as you say, at that stage. So they're the kind of things. It's hanging in when you feel like that. That's what I've learned. Um, from my experience and looking back on my own career, I wish I, I was, I wish I had the insights I do now. I could have applied mm. things a whole lot better uh, in, in my own career and would have handled situations better if I was um, prepared for them better and I had a strategy. So when that feeling did come, enable that, enable to ride it and not, not cause myself harm by, you know, making bogeys and double bogeys. Can I, can I ask a, an, an incendiary question then on exactly that point? If obviously strategy is so important and it's the ability to refine that moment that you need, you know, if you lose it to get back into it. So what importance does the team that you surround yourself with take on? And I mentioned this because, and I hasten to add that a lot of people way outside the inner circle of professional golf will say, well, the, you know, the solution to Rory's problem is he needs a new coach. He needs a new caddy. He, you know, he needs to change up the team. He needs to make the changes required. And I thought it was curious watching in Dubai, which obviously you saw it, is that you had Matt Fitzpatrick with Billy Foster on the bag. And then second is Lee Westwood with his fiance on the bag. And, and I'm sitting there going, geez, they're like, and I, the only thing I kept thinking about, I wonder what it must be like for Lee to see Billy Foster. And say, hey, how's it going? You know, because obviously they spent years working together. So, so to what extent is that just a bit of nonsense that we journalists or people who fans of golf might kind of go, wonder about the solution to the problem? Or is there something really in that, do you think? I, I think all, the team have got to be all in it. And that's what open, open and honesty within the team, within the core team, beside that is what's really important. I mean, I'll tell you another, another story um, um, from sports psychologist in the game told me the story about do you remember the singer uh, seal sure remember yeah. seal so seal be became a big hit um out of nowhere from london big hit and he had this huge success and he, he was to play in front of a couple of hundred thousand people in hyde park in his first concert and you know it was like amazing but he had this problem where he would forget the words even his own songs that he you know was singing he was forgetting the words and he had this performance anxiety about oh my God, I'm going to play in, 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 in front of a couple hundred thousand in my hometown and I've got this thing going on with, you know, forgetting the words. Anyway, cut long story short, they devised a strategy that if this happened, that he was going to lip sync and just talk, on, it's great, I'm in London, it's great to be here, but the back and band were going to continue to play until he kind of stabilized himself and then he, the words would come back and off he was learning again. So he had a strategy in place when, uh, if that was to happen, um, and that took away the anxiety. So, so it's important that, you know, the back and band were, were all part and understood what he was going through. Um, but, you know, having a strategy like that, Fiona, for me, it's really important. And mm. look back on it now, it's, it's not just reacting in the moment. It's all about the 
I think we're all in agreement, though, on Rory then, Joe, that, like what Paul is touching on, that game management, tournament manage, management, to just be there on the back nine of a major at the very least this year. Because, unfortunately, it's not a Dustin Johnson string of near misses over the last six years. There's, what, the Patrick Reed Masters, where even that was over inside a couple of holes. Like, mm. I know he would get hammered for it. I wouldn't have an issue with Rory getting to the 18th the 72nd hole tied for the lead in the major and something going wrong no, at least no. it's a massive because that, oh, yeah, can, always yeah, yeah. Happen. that can happen just to any around. player yeah. but just be there because more likely than not something won't go wrong for McElroy if he's in that position mm. because of the weight yeah. of his best and personality I mean that's the irony about the whole conversation here um, Nathan is when he gets in a head to head down the stretch he wins mm. you know his win ratio is phenomenal when he gets in you know one or two guys I remember him beating Showplay last year at HSBC when he gets in playoffs when he gets in heads to heads he's, he's really strong so this is not a lack of guile this is not a lack of heart um, this is just a strategy of keeping himself in the game as you say until the last nine holes because that's when he will be at his strength mm. to wrap up you can't review a golfing year and I'm not going to get to it like I had a bunch of stuff written down everything from Sophia, Popov, to a bunch of other stuff we won't get to. Uh, Tiger Woods, you got to talk Tiger in any uh, review of the golfing year. So he played in nine tournaments. He managed one finish better than tied 37th. Not a factor in any of the majors. A nice first round at Augusta and a hell of a last six holes at Augusta. Went from sixth in the world rankings down to 38th. Uh, this felt like, uh, Paul, this felt like it, didn't it? This felt like, uh-oh. What we got in uh, 2019 really was the kind of sweet swan song. Now, he does have uh, the Masters again in, in, what, four months? And, and there were kind of glimpses of, of a game there last month. But, um, geez, on the back of 2019, 2020 was a bit of a, a Tiger Woods disaster, really. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, probably, you know, a lack of atmosphere certainly didn't help him. Whereas it helped the younger guys. I think he, he was disadvantaged that way. Um, I You know... Obviously, carrying an injury, wasn't able to practice, prepare, put in the work that he would normally do. His schedule was really badly affected. Um, you know, I think the reality of what we're looking at now, you know, as players get older, you know, the two majors that they have most chance of winning are, are the Masters and the Open. And I think that's kind of where we're getting to uh, uh, with Tiger. Um, you know, would you rule him out not winning another major championship? No. Uh, again, like Rory, he's got the guide and he's got the heart. He's just got to get there in the back nine holes. And you know that he's not, you know, pretty much going to beat himself. He's able to, uh, you know, get the job done, as we saw in, in Augusta last year. So, but yeah, look, this is a normal decline of, of, of a guy who comes uh, into his late 40s. You know, mm. it's, it doesn't matter who you are, you know. It's, what's the old saying? Father time is undefeated. Um, can't quit him though I mean golf golf still has not outgrown Tiger you know I mean there was that period when he was really out and it was over and we were all saying got all these great young players and they're brilliant and we were just kidding ourselves really because when Woods came back you saw the difference and the game without Woods it's not in trouble of course but it, like geez Woods brings just so much you saw it last year at the at, at uh, Augusta um He's, he's irreplaceable. He's just irreplaceable. He's so fascinating. You could talk about him forever. You could read about him forever. You could watch him play golf forever. Um, like in our lifetimes, if we're lucky, we might see something close to that. Oh, yeah. yeah. And this year, the World, World Golf Hall of Fame changed its eligibility requirement. Jesus. Um, from, so you, 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 could, uh, you can now get in if you're 45 instead of 50. And Tiger Woods is going to be inducted because he turns 45 on the 30th of December. So when they do the 2021 inductees, he's going to be along with Tim Fincham and um, two people I don't know, Marion Hollins and Susie Maxwell Burning are the four that are being inducted. So, right. I mean, it was obvious. I mean, look, geez, you know. I really hope that Tim Fincham's speech is just bowing down to Tiger and saying, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank, thank, thank you for everything you. you've done. <laughs> thank you. You have made all of us. Um, can, I, can I just throw a notable thing for the, the year that could have been for poor old Xander Schoffler, who started the year before COVID at the Century Tournament of Champions. He had a 40-foot, he had a two-putt from 40 feet to win and hit the first putt like eight feet by and then missed the one on the way back. And then when golf resumed at the Charles Schwab, on the 71st hole, he had a two-footer just to stay in the lead. And he had the 360-degree horseshoe that kind of dropped him down and so and then went out in the first playoff hole. But he could have, like, 
like momentum. He could have had a year where he won twice, you know, and then who knows, I could have gone on and, and you know, he's number seven in the world. He's, he's a terrific golfer. Um, and instead, like it's, it's the year that wasn't for poor yeah. old Xander. Yeah. Well, listen, um, I mean, we've only kind of scratched the surface of the year. Uh, financially, Paul, how's golf doing? Oh, it's flying. Top end is absolutely flying. Oh, my God. Look at that last week. We had a three million first prize. Um, we had one and a half second with another one and a half that Lee won for winning the Auto So he made three million last year and he had 11 guys qualified who decided not to go. Um, three million. Think about it. Three million first prize. Hmm. Um, it's, it's just it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. And then. Um, you know, the same with the PGA Tour. The money's going up again next year in the PGA Tour. By all accounts, the FedEx is going to be stretched out to a bigger price fund than it is now. And that's going to continue going forward for the, for the next number of years. They just signed this new DV deal like three or four days before COVID hit and closed them down at the, at the TPC. So at the very top end, the amount of money these guys are making is absolutely astronomical. And, and um, that's why, you know, they, they're not turning up for a $3 million mm. first prize. And it's quite incredible. And the amounts of money that they're all getting played to play in Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia next year is just extraordinary. If you heard the numbers, it's just incredible. Telephone numbers. So yeah, if you're, if you're good, <laughs> if you're good, um, it's, it's, it's out there. It really is. And, and, you know, right down, right down to 50. I mean, last week was a limited field of 60 players. So everybody was getting paid, you know, 30, 40, 50 grand just for being there. Um, okay. Same with the, you know, in America. And, and, you know, as I say, a lot of them decide that they don't want to play uh, for one reason or another. It's so I wouldn't worry about uh, the top end of professional golf down the lower end, the challenge tour and the smaller events, the European tour. Yeah, of course, there's some challenges down there. And, you know, um, we're going to help support that certainly as part of the board of the European tour. And it needs some helping. Um, but at the top end, don't worry about those guys. They're okay. flying. Okay, 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 I won't. Uh, fellas, listen, thanks so much. Have a great Christmas. Thanks to all the Golf Weekly listeners for being with us all year. Fionn, thank you. Nathan Murphy, as ever, thank thanks, you. Joe. Peter thanks, Laurie, Joe. thanks a million. Thanks, Joe. And Paul McGinley, listen, thanks so much. We've taken up loads of your time. It was great, though. Thanks a million. Pleasure, guys. You're welcome. Thanks very much. All the thanks, best. Paul. Happy Christmas. Thanks, Paul. Happy, Happy Christmas. Christmas. Happy Christmas. The OTB Podcast Network. 